Hello, and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, will you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is John Altman. John is Senior Vice President, Brzezinski Chair in Global Security, and Director, Middle East Program for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's speaking to me from Washington, D.C. John, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be with you, Bill. In his Tel Aviv speech, President Biden gave full support to Israel, but he also cautioned against being consumed by rage. What do you make of his advice? And, and do you think that uh, Israelis are likely to follow it? I, I'm looking at, in the days since that speech, what's going on in Gaza. Do you see that that mist of rage is, is lifting somewhat, or is it still very much in play? I don't see the mist of rage lifting, but I do see a consistent American theme of trying to persuade Israelis to learn from American mistakes in the Middle East for the last 20 years. The U.S. has been fighting, or the U.S. was fighting insurgencies in the Middle East for two decades after 9-11. We had the effort in Afghanistan. We had the effort in Iraq. We had the effort against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. You know, at a time when every senior person in the U.S. government really earned their stripes in one of these conflicts, people say there there are things you have to learn from that. One is that the military victory doesn't determine the victory of the effort. We all remember the the mission accomplished banner on the on the ship that that President Bush spoke in front of. Um, that what you're really looking for is a political outcome. And while military instruments help you get there, military instruments can't achieve that. Uh, The way you fight has to be determined in part by what you're trying to do. That one of the important parts of of fighting is separating the insurgents from the population around them. I think from an American perspective and from the perspective of senior officials in the government, these are hard-earned lessons. And don't forget, President Biden was in charge of Iraq policy in the Obama administration. And I think there's there's some concern that Israelis don't really think these lessons are relevant to them. And from an American perspective, certainly from the president's perspective, they're highly relevant. And I, th- I think you're you're seeing a consistent effort by the U.S. government to persuade Israelis not only to pull back and think about what they're doing, but to align their military tasks with longer-term political and governance objectives. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Israel has said it will destroy Hamas to ensure its long-term security. I mean, it may achieve the former, but do you think the latter aim will be will be secured and, and and I look at what's going on on a daily basis, civilian casualties happening in Gaza have caused critics to say, this is a genocide. Does Biden find himself on the wrong side of the street here? 
Yeah, I think that the genocide and ethnic cleansing language is is overwrought and I think inappropriate in this case. But there are certainly large scale civilian casualties. Uh, and the idea that you can simply crush Hamas by killing enough people, I think, is is misguided. If you think about the U.S. effort against al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda was this place, but the organization hasn't been destroyed. The U.S. was fighting the Taliban. The Taliban are actually in power in Afghanistan after 20 years. So what what you have to think about is what are you really trying to do? And I think what the Israelis are really trying to do is make Gaza inhospitable to Hamas as an organization. And the only way to do that, it seems to me, is by giving Palestinians in Gaza another choice, a horizon to a better life that doesn't involve Hamas. Now, that's partly about crushing Hamas, but it's partly also about providing a pathway to a better life. And I'm not sure the Israelis have wrapped their their heads around presenting that choice to Palestinians. And I'm afraid that unless Palestinians do feel they have that choice, that if Hamas is simply uh, another way to talk about resistance, uh, there are going to be some large number of Palestinians who say, this is intolerable, we will resist. Yeah, that I mean, the point is that for me, looking at this situation, that the civilian casualties are enormous now and, and they're happening on a daily basis and appalling stories emerging, for example, hospital in Gaza City with premature babies and the the electricity supply running out. Uh, these stories are you know damaging Israel's global reputation, I think. But to come back to that idea that there is a military solution to Hamas, because for every Hamas operative that you kill, there will be many more who will grow, grow into becoming Hamas supporters, Hamas fighters. And, and I think you make a very good point here, John, is that Israel seems only to be fixated now on a military solution. And that's not going to work. Yeah, there's going to be a longer term debate in Israel, partly about accountability for how Israel got into this space. I think there, there's going to be a longer term debate. Certainly the people who argue there's no possible peace with Palestinians uh, will be strengthened in some quarters. But it's my hope that when Israelis have time to think through and, and think holistically, that this this understanding of a necessity to provide Palestinians with a genuine choice and to make the choice that Israelis want them to take be more attractive than the choice that, that many in Gaza have taken, I think is is central to Israeli security, that this idea of we can just mow the grass, we can periodically go in and, and crush Hamas, was something that Israelis told me with great confidence for 15 years. And I think Israelis will not say with great confidence ever again. Mm. Yeah, and I think that confidence in Netanyahu, who very much the strategist of that mowing the grass approach, once this war is is, is ended, do, do you see him 
paying uh, some sort of a price or or just... you know i i never heard him talk about mowing the grass i mean i've heard mm -hmm. him speak several times that, that's not a phrase he used it's a phrase that security people used to use mm -hmm. um but netanyahu was also somebody who talked about the utility of having hamas divided from the palestinian authority as a way to forestall any sort of palestinian statehood uh, as i say i think there are going to be some israelis who say look this this proves that there is no living in peace with Palestinians. It's my hope that when all the dust settles, uh, there will be some number of Israelis who say, you know, there actually is no alternative to living in peace with Palestinians. And we have to find some route uh, to, to giving them a more attractive option and and a route to, to ensure that, that they can pursue it without violent terrorists overthrowing it because they're going to be rejectionists on each side who are going to try to overthrow it. Yeah, and we've seen that with this current government, this uh, the most extreme in Israel's history. You've got uh, the national security minister, you've got the finance minister, uh, that's uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, very much pursuing an agenda where Palestine is effectively cleansed of Palestinians, or what they would call uh, Judea and Samaria, and uh, uh, you know, is cleansed, and and this kind of, you know, it does enable those who look at the situation say this is ethnic cleansing, this is apartheid, this right, is right, and 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 of course Netanyahu is trying to marginalize these guys and says, look, I'm the prime minister, I'm in control, don't listen to them. Uh, ben Gavir is clearly stung at not being in the war cabinet and he keeps trying to argue his way in. Uh, how, look, Israel is a democracy and what Netanyahu's future is, I suspect he doesn't have a very good political future. What Ben Gavir's political future is, I have no idea what Ben Gavir's political future is, but I would argue that, that the views espoused by Ben Gavir and Smutra, if they become the, the policy of the Israeli government will change Israel's perception in the world, its role in the world, its relationships in the world. Mm. So there will be a price to pay. But let's go back to that path, path towards potential peace. Uh, there are many who argue that the two-state solution is dead and buried. I wonder if you agree with that prognosis and, and also if it's a view that's shared, not not publicly, clearly, but privately by the White House, that there is no longer a possibility for a two-state solution. Well, I don't think anybody thinks a two-state solution is is easy or or without trouble. But I also haven't heard anybody argue for something that is easier or more trouble-free. So it seems to me that 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 the view is until somebody comes up with a better idea that should be the goal. I mean, you want to disentangle Israeli rule over disenfranchised Arabs. Uh, you want to give Arabs some sense of, of self-determination. If there's a way to do that other than, than a two-state solution, I think people would be willing to entertain that. But I don't, I don't know what that is. Certainly a one-state solution is poisonous to many who believe that, that Israel is important to exist as a Jewish state because of millennia of Jew Jewish persecution that, that rears its head periodically. Um, what a Jewish state is 
how you define the boundaries of it, what the role of non-Jews in a Jewish state is. I think all these are are problems that Israelis have been wrestling with and will continue to wrestle with. But I I think the idea that you can have a Jewish state which has permanent control over the lives of millions and millions of, of Palestinian Arabs who come to represent a majority in that state, I think that's that's not viable in the long term. I don't think Israelis think it's viable. Part of the idea of getting rid of Gaza is to get rid of uh, the numbers that uh, that that would represent Palestinians under Israeli control. But but I just I think Israel needs a needs to find some other solution. Israel needs permanent borders. And uh, I think that requires some other arrangement for the rule of Palestinians. Thanks. And John, you mentioned get rid of Gaza. Just What, what did you mean by that? Well, the, by the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, mm. right? I mean, you have, you have this constant dispute over territory in the West Bank in area A and B and C. Uh, it's hard to disentangle the, the Jewish and Arab populations of the West Bank. But you can argue that by withdrawing from Gaza, Israel has ended its control over 2.3 million Palestinians. Although, of course, Israel controls most of the the ways in and out of Gaza uh, in cooperation with the Egyptians. And and the people in Gaza are are completely constrained and, and have no actual control over travel, livelihoods, all sorts of things. Yeah, it's been described as the world's largest open-air prison, 2.2 or 2.3 million Gazans stuck in that situation. Uh, On the West Bank, you know, the illegal settlements continue apace. In fact, have increased dramatically in this current uh, regime that Netanyahu's cobbled together. Well, and, you know, and and, and one of the concerns in the West Bank is the rise of vigilante security efforts. Mm. that's dangerous in any society when you have vigilantes who are armed, who are enforcing the law yeah. in, in uh, defiance of state authority. And this seems to be the strategy of at least some people in the Israeli government. And it seems to me to be a strategy that promises greater violence and not less. Yeah, I think the figure thus far since uh, the 7th uh of October attack uh, is that 95 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, and I believe the majority of them by, as you said, settler vigilantes. That You're right, that's a very worrying situation as well. There was an assumption that Arabs, and particularly young Arabs, had lost interest in the Palestinian cause, and that's clearly not the case, as we're seeing with protests right across the, the Middle East. But did both America in pursuing the Abraham Accords and the Arab governments that signed onto the Accords misread the strength of support that's there in the Arab street for Palestinians. It's, it's the init- My initial take is probably yes, but what actually Arab support is, what its boundaries are, what people support and, and uh, don't support about Palestine, the, ex- the extent to which people support Palestinians and Hamas, the extent to which people support a, a sort of Hamas as an underdog against improbable odds. I think we're, we're several turns away from seeing how this plays out. Certainly Arab governments are more restrained 
than they've been in the past. And, and most Arab governments are deeply hostile to Hamas as an armed group is embracing political Islam supported by the Iranians. Uh, as you know better than anybody, those are, are two things that tie into the, the deep insecurities of Arab governments, the armed group supporting political Islam and being supported by the Iranians. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be interesting the way Arab governments try to shape, and they will try to shape, public support for Palestinians, but not for Hamas, whether any of this puts any life into the Palestinian Authority, which has become increasingly moribund. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who, as you know, 14 years after the expiry of his term as the president of Palestine, uh, will the sort of six-month, one-year outcome of this be some sort of invigoration of the Palestinian Authority in what shape, with what sort of support for Arab governments, with what sort of popular Arab support. I think a lot of these things are are yet to be seen, Mm. but I was struck at how the the Ahli hospital bombing, which the Israelis, it seems, did not cause, Mm. uh, really galvanized instant support in the Arab world, pushed Arab governments immediately to criticize Israel, who had been reluctant to criticize Israel. Uh, there, there's something out there that that people didn't quite grasp, uh, that people need to come to terms with. And as I said, I think that the contours of this are not obvious, but they're certainly not what people assumed they were three weeks ago. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, John Altman, based in Washington, D.C. We are a truly independent voice in the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Just to come back to the Abraham Accords, you know, President Biden was pushing pretty hard to get the Saudis to sign on before 7th of October. Do you think that's now blown out of the water, or do you think that can be revisited uh, sometime down the road? I can foresee an arrangement where there is Arab recognition of Israel in exchange for Israeli recognition of Palestine, uh, some sort of Arab support for some sort of Palestinian state. Not really sure how this plays out, but it certainly seems to me that one thing that will be on the table is both Arab support for whatever governance system emerges in Gaza and Israeli support for that and Arab recognition of Israel. But it's not going to be through an Abraham Accords process that that largely sidelines the Palestinians. It seems to me that it's going to have to be through some sort of vehicle that explicitly recognizes the Palestinians, because ultimately Israel is going to need Arab support to build an alternative to Hamas in Gaza. And I think Arabs will have an interest not only in in pushing Iranian proxies out of the region and and weakening political Islam, uh, but also in, in being seen not to just be the Israelis' handmaiden in suppressing Palestinian aspirations, but actually uh, to be agents in, in the re- realization of Palestinian aspirations. Yeah. Uh, as you say, it's an interesting 
It's an interesting, very challenging uh, landscape. Where do you see this war going, John, in the next days and weeks? And and what could the Israelis do that could cost it American support? I mean, what is the line? Is, is there a red line for, for Joe Biden on, on this war? Or is he just backing the Israelis all the way, come what may? My view is that the president went to see Netanyahu to make a deposit and to demonstrate that he's not merely critical and to build trust. But the point of doing that was to have influence over how the Israelis fight this war. I think we've already seen evidence that the Americans are, are causing the Israelis to rethink some assumptions. I think the, the fact that there hasn't been an Israeli land invasion is, is at least partly a consequence of the Biden visit, the Austin phone calls, the, the Blinken visit, all sorts of things. I think that the the criticism you're going to see is going to be in private, not in public. I think it is going to be oblique. You're going to have the Americans asking lots of hard questions. But I think the Israelis also have to balance their conviction that the world will criticize them, whatever they do, with a sense that the United States and others are holding Israel to standards. And there will be both private and I would expect some public criticism uh, if Israel acts with uh, blatant disregard of humanitarian principles. There are some who argue the Israelis have already shown blatant disregard for humanitarian principles. Indeed. Yeah. But, but you know, I think as we've seen from the Athlete Hospital bombing, it's a problem definitively accepting what Hamas says. Hamas controls the health ministry. I, I, I take what I hear with a grain of salt, but, but here's the reality. If there are ground operations, there are going to be many more graphic images that come out, which are going to be a lot more disturbing than what we saw after the athlete hospital bombing. And there'll be no question the Israelis are responsible for them. And uh, I think the Israelis have to think carefully about that piece of it. Look at what happened when they weren't responsible for something. When they're indisputably responsible for something, the scrutiny will be uh, much starker. And I think the consequences will be sharper. Mm, yeah. What are the regional implications? You've touched on Iran, but, but let's, for example, John, say that Hezbollah decides to take advantage of the fact that much of the IDF is on the southern border and launch, you know, a pretty large barrage of rockets. We're looking at a very dangerous scenario. Yeah, although a lot of the IDF is on the northern border. I mean, I think part of what Hezbollah is trying to do is to keep the Israelis preoccupied in some way, given that, that Hezbollah has, has portrayed itself as a key part of the axis of resistance it will be hard for Hezbollah to be completely inactive when Palestinians are, are fighting and dying in Gaza. But I think Hezbollah has a hard choice to make. Lebanon has gone from a middle-income country to a country where 80 to 85% of the population is below the poverty line. Lebanon is vulnerable. Lebanon is tottering. And if Hezbollah invites the Israeli destruction of both southern Lebanon and, and infrastructure in Beirut, 
I'm not sure that Hezbollah wouldn't lose a tremendous amount of its support in Lebanon. You know, from an Iranian perspective, the Iranian economy is very weak, as you know. A lot of Iranians think that that all these regional activities are extracurricular exercises by a, an ideological leadership with whom they don't agree. And if the consequence of all these proxies acting out is greater suffering in Iran, I think that will hurt the Iranian government politically. So my, my sense is that their preference would be that, that they remind people that they can threaten. Uh, they do limited things, but it all stays within the guardrails. Mm-hmm. Now, the danger of doing that is you can always miscalculate. Yes. So there's escalation because of calculation, and there's escalation because of miscalculation. As this goes on, the, the danger of escalation by miscalculation is going to rise, and we could very easily see ourselves in a, a large-scale battle, which could possibly involve uh, U.S. forces. I would think the U.S. would rather not. But this could this could unwind, and it could unwind uh, simply with one errant attack. Yeah, that is that is the scenario. Uh, it could be just something as fundamental as human error. You know, someone hitting the wrong button at the wrong time. Um, but Netanyahu has said that this is going to be a long war. Now, in terms of Gaza, long wars, I don't know. They've been pretty short wars. But a long war for him, I think he's talking about months. Um, but the question is, is America in danger of being dragged into yet another Middle East war? I mean, you mentioned Iraq. You mentioned, uh, you could argue that the campaign against ISIS was successful, but you look at Afghanistan and the Taliban emerge winners. Is that a possibility? Is that scenario in the back of the minds of many uh, of the Biden administration? Look, I'm sure they're, they are prepared for the possibility. The, 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 again, it's it's hard to overstate the extent to which everybody in the national security leadership was shaped, had career shaped by these efforts in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, and a sense that we have to learn the lessons. We have to we have to learn the lessons about goals, about the lessons of political outcomes, the lessons of of populations and giving people choices, the lessons of having clear and achievable military objectives. So I don't think the U.S. is, is going to make the Iraq mistake again uh, so soon after it made the Iraq mistake before. Uh, I don't think it's going to make the Afghanistan mistake again the way it made so soon after we just got out of Afghanistan. But there's the possibility of making new mistakes. And there's the the question of what would happen to the U.S.-Israeli relationship if the U.S. came to believe that Israel is making some really fundamental mistakes and endangering uh, American national security. I don't think we're there yet. Certainly people are, are concerned about it. You saw there's a, a three-star Marine general who just went over uh, to Israel to, to talk to them really about how you tie operations to objectives and what's militarily achievable. 
I think one of the examples that, that I've heard nobody talking about, but I think is significant, is you remember when the Emiratis were, were talking about capturing Hodeida from the Houthis? Mm. And the Americans sat down and talked to the Emiratis about what does this really take? You know, what does it take militarily? And and, and what's the outcome? And, and what's your end state? And all those things. And P.S., the Emiratis never made that attack. So I think there is a sense that people in the military have that military folks respect each other. And the U.S. has some hard-won expertise. And the U.S. can sway what the Israelis do. Again, exactly what the Israelis do, I don't know. There's certainly an extent to which by literally embracing uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Joe Biden is tied to Israeli decisions, whether he agrees with them or not. But it does seem to me that that Biden has done what he can to try to influence this in a more constructive direction. And I think one of the things that, that Americans have concluded really is the the extent to which the military operations are a small piece of this. And if what you're looking for really is governance outcomes, the way you fight the war has to be shaped by your desired governance outcomes and not by short-term tactical military achievements. The short-term tactical military achievements, hard fought as they are, bloody as they are, are very short-term. And what you really need is, is much longer term and much harder. And, you know, I'm increasingly focused on the idea that the Israelis are, are, are very centered on what they're trying to destroy. And there needs to be much more attention paid to what do they need to preserve in order to get the long-term outcomes in Gaza that they think are going to provide security for Israelis are necessary to provide security for Israelis. There is as much necessity to think about preserving things, whether it's ties to Arab governments, some elements of infrastructure, uh, some aspects of, of, of local rule in Gaza that that could help provide order that is not tied to Hamas. I mean, all these things are important to think about at the front end because you're going to need them at the back end. Yeah, yeah. Big questions hanging in the air. Let me ask you finally one question. One more question, John. The Republicans, we're heading into a an election year. Are the Republicans going to be able to make any uh, political capital out of Joe Biden's handling of this crisis? It is hard to understand where Republican politics are going to be. I'm just stunned that, that some candidates for Speaker of the House are, are supposedly disqualified because they voted to certify Joe Biden's election. Yeah. That 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 strikes me as a a very strange litmus test for whether somebody is qualified for for leadership in a democracy. So I I I don't know where Republican politics are going. It it feels to me like the country in general and the Republican party in particular are seized with a, a really remarkable level of alienation. I think we see this throughout Western democracies. I think we see it in other places as well. I think, frankly, we see it in Gaza. I don't know what to do with that level of alienation, but how you take that alienation, turn it into 
constructive public policy is going to be an enduring challenge, both for the Republican Party, um, but I think for whoever wins elections. You can't govern just by no votes. You have to do things. And that requires something other than alienation, some sort of positive agenda. And again, I think that, that one of the challenges for Israel, it has to provide a, a positive agenda or the possibility of choosing a positive agenda for Palestinians that Palestinians are going to want to embrace. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, and said quite strongly, military solutions as the only solution is in the end, no solution at all. I say, rem- remember the, the mission accomplished banner. Mm. Yes. And that was, I think, uh, just a, a stark example. A governance uh, piece ultimately is much, much harder than military peace. But to get to that pathway, John, should President Biden be calling for a ceasefire, even a limited ceasefire? It's hard for me to to judge exactly where Hamas's military activities are, where Hamas's military preparations are. I mean, the Israelis are hitting hundreds of targets a night. Uh, I don't know what they're destroying. I certainly hope that we can get to a ceasefire soon. I certainly hope we can get more than 220 hostages released. I think there. I hope we can get humanitarian assistance into Gazan civilians. There are a, a lot of different pieces here. I hope we can align all of them. But it's it's hard for me to see at a time when Hamas is geared up to fight back an Israeli invasion, it's hard for me to see how the Israelis would leave Hamas in place with all of its military capabilities after Hamas burst into Israel and killed 1,400 civilians. That's, I think, for any democracy, that would be an intolerable end state to just say, okay, we'll, we'll go back to square one. Mm, yeah, clearly it is that. And and Israel has been grievously wounded and Palestinians are being grievously wounded. Uh, it's a very difficult situation, but I thank you very much for your thoughts on it today, John. Thank you, Bill. It was good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Brzezinski Chair in Global Security, and Director, Middle East Program for the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thank you to all our listeners. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising, no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers. Contributors like John. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of nearly 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.